Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now. This episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. It is the second edition, and it's by Scott Klusendorf. Pro-life Christians take heart. The pro-life message can compete in the marketplace of ideas if Christians properly understand and articulate that message. In light of the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, too many Christians do not understand the essential truths of the pro-life position, making it difficult for them to articulate a biblical worldview on issues like abortion, cloning, and embryo research. This second edition of The Case for Life, now with a substantial amount of additional and updated content, provides intellectual grounding for the pro-life convictions that most evangelicals hold. The debate turns on one key question. What is the unborn? In this timely book, author Scott Klusendorf teaches readers what the role of the pro-life Christian should be and how to lovingly and winsomely engage in questions and objections. Pick up a copy of The Case for Life today and receive 30% off when you sign up for a free Crossway Plus account at crossway.org forward slash plus. In June of 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, which had made abortion legal across the U.S. almost 50 years prior. Justice Samuel Alito wrote the court opinion and said that the 1973 Roe ruling and other high court decisions since then must be overruled because they were, quote, egregiously wrong. The arguments were exceptionally weak and so damaging that they amounted to, quote, an abuse of judicial authority. Pro-lifers, of course, agreed and celebrated, but many of us also quickly realized that pro-life work in the U.S. was in need of an overhaul and, for sure, some new energy. In the year since the overturn of Roe, we've seen hundreds of different abortion restriction laws, as well as those written to increase access to abortion, hit every state legislature across the nation. We now have states where abortion has no restrictions and states where abortion is totally banned. Pro-abortion advocates have a lot of energy, and they have been working tirelessly to raise money and keep abortion accessible to all women across the country. So while overturning Roe was good and right, and we are so thankful, all those who work in the pro-life field agree that we have work to do. So on this episode today, I'm talking to Scott Klusendorf, and he is a giant in the pro-life field. But before we hear from him, I wanted to share some data with all of you listeners. So according to the Pew Research Center, after Roe was overturned, 62% of U.S. adults said abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 36% said it should be illegal in all or most cases. So clearly far more people feel in America that abortion should be legal than those who feel it should be illegal. Another survey showed that relatively few Americans take an absolutist view on the issue. Well, here's the impact that we have seen since overturning Roe. Overall, in the two months after the Supreme Court decision, there were 10,570 fewer abortions as compared to the numbers before the decision. In the six months after Roe was overturned, the average number of of abortions per month dropped by about 7%. In the states with the strictest restrictions, and I'll list those for you, They are about Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, 
West Virginia, and Wisconsin, there was a 96% drop in abortion in just one month. Of course, I think we can all agree we thank God for those saved lives. Now, national abortion numbers have not returned yet to what we saw before Roe was overturned, but they have climbed a bit since that initial big drop-off. After a full year nationwide, legal abortions have fallen a total of about 3% overall. Some states have a total abortion ban, and some states where abortion is legal have seen a huge wave of women crossing state lines to get abortions there. So, for example, Planned Parenthood of Illinois has said they see they have seen a 54% jump in abortion patients over the past year. The number of women who seek abortion services via telehealth has also increased. So just to remind you, um, an abortion provided by telehealth would be a medical abortion or one where you're prescribed med- medication for the abortion. So prior to the overturn of Roe, telehealth accounted for only 4% of all abortions, but that number has risen to 11% now, months later. Um, I have talked about medical abortion at length before on all things. Um, these are at-home abortions that are increasingly common and unsafe. A medical abortion is when women are prescribed medicines that terminate the life of their child, and then they cause their wombs to expel their baby. So as you can imagine, it's a traumatic process and one that can cause tremendous blood loss and pain, not to mention the mental and emotional trauma that women and girls experience when they are undergoing this isolated and at home alone. Of course, because they do it at home and alone, there is no medical provider to oversee such complications. I will link the episode where I talked about at-home abortion um, in the show notes to this episode. So if you want to learn more about that and the risks involved, you can um, tune into that episode as well. Well, in the last year, legal battles have arisen over the availability of mifepristone, which is one of the two medicines that are used in a medical abortion protocol. There are 37 states where they have legal access to some form of medication abortion. Mifepristone is available in 22 states, but it is restricted in 15 states. So as you're going to hear in my conversation with Scott Klusendorf, the pro-life community has work to do. He is going to equip you to think rightly about life and life issues. I hope that this conversation spurs you on to maybe take action if you haven't yet in some pro-life work, to pursue the pregnancy centers in your community, to find ways to support expectant mothers and families that are in need. As I have said before in my book, Cultural Counterfeits, The pro-life community must come to realize that this is not an us versus them issue. They are us. As humans, we are in this together. How can we all choose life together so that our children may live? Let's turn now to that conversation that I had with Scott. Thanks for listening in. Welcome to All Things Everybody. Scott Klusendorf is with me today, and Scott is the president of Life Training Institute. He travels all over the U.S. and the world training pro-life advocates and university students to persuasively defend their views. He wrote the first edition of The Case for Life in 2009. It's a book that I have cherished, and my copy is all marked up, dog-eared in many places as I refer to it regularly. But Scott published a new version, a second edition of The Case for Life earlier this year. So I wanted to have him join us on all things so that we can talk about how the pro-life movement has changed, how it's evolved over the years, new issues that we're facing in this conversation. So Scott, welcome to all things. Jennifer, it's great to be with you. 
So glad you're with us. So how long have you been involved in pro-life work? And I want to hear from you. How has the abortion issue changed over time? I've been in this now 33 years, and it started in November of 1990 when I heard a speaker give a pro-life presentation, a man by the name of Greg Cunningham. He was a former member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He gave a very persuasive pro-life apologetics talk. I'd always been pro-life, Jennifer, but I wasn't lifting a finger to stop the killing. I was one of those Christians that was ill-equipped wasn't motivated to do anything about the issue, like I think a lot of people are today. They they may be not involved be, like I was. I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to apply my biblical worldview. But this speaker showed me how. But then he did something that changed forever the trajectory of my life. He showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. I had never seen abortion. And Jennifer, I sat there and wept like a baby. I thought, I'm no different than the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I am passing by on the other side of the road. I say I care about this, but I don't act like I care about it. And that's not enough. Mm -hmm. And so from that point forward, I, I was motivated to do something about this. And that's how I got in this 33 years ago. And here are some of the changes I'm seeing. Where I think prior to the reversal of Roe v. Wade, a year ago, which, by the way, was a good thing. I know there's some people that think, oh, it's been a bad thing because we've been facing some defeats at the ballot box since then. No, it was a good thing because that legal precedent in Roe prevented us from even having the opportunity to fight on a level playing field. Now we have that opportunity. But what what has changed is I think for years we thought if we could just change the Supreme Court if we could just overcome a hostile press, we could win this fight. And that's not true. The bigger problem we have right now is the American public is not with us. The pro-life view is a minority position. And I've heard people try to spin this a billion different ways, and they're just wrong. Those of us that are in the field know very well that we have a worldview problem. We have a lot of convincing to do. And if we don't have Christians equipped to do that convincing, convince, uh, I'll go to speech therapy after this. If we don't have <laughs> Christians equipped to do that convincing, we're not going to win this fight. And that's why I wrote the second edition of The Case for Life. I wanted to equip Christians in a post-Roe v. Wade world to engage people who don't hold our basic worldview assumptions. Because if we don't start challenging those assumptions at the thought level, we're not going to win this fight. Yeah. Okay. That is really helpful. You know, you do say the abortion debates are contentious because they involve deep worldview commitments. Yeah. But the debate itself is not complex. What do you mean? No. The debate is very simple. Does each and every human being have an equal right to life or do only some have it? In other words, this debate comes down very simply to the question, what is the unborn? And the problem in our culture, Jennifer, is people want to answer the question, can I kill the unborn, without answering the predicate question, what is the unborn? Uh, I'll give you an example. The current president of the United States on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade said this, reproductive health care, by which, of course, he meant abortion, is something all Americans should celebrate. Uh, Mr. President, does everyone include the unborn? Should mm -hmm. they celebrate the fact that they are systematically dismembered and cut up in the name of reproductive health care? Does reproductive health care benefit them? 
See, he simply assumed the unborn aren't human. He didn't argue for it. And this debate very simply comes down to what is the unborn? Here's where the debate seems complex to people. They think that because it's psychologically problematic for people, that it's therefore morally complex. And that is simply not the case. For example, if you and I were to hear about a 14-year-old girl that we both knew who was pregnant and her boyfriend's threatening to dump her, her parents, who are leaders in the local church, are not happy with the pregnancy and they're threatening to kick her out of the house and she's going to lose the prospects of going to school She'll lose a college education. She'll not make good money because she's going to spend the next 18 years raising a kid. We definitely feel psychological sympathy for her. Who wouldn't unless you're heartless? However, it doesn't follow that because the issue feels psychologically complex, that it's also morally complex. Morally, it comes down to one question. Is it okay to intentionally kill an innocent human being that's in the way of something we want or need? And the answer should be, that's a very simple answer, no. So we've got to answer the issue, what is the unborn, before we deal with the question, can we kill them? And that's precisely the question our culture tries to ignore. It confuses yeah. psychological complexity with moral complexity. That is really clarifying and really helpful because I think the debate and the conversations surrounding it are incredibly emotional. And yeah. it's, you know, it, I have, um, you know, very closely held loved ones who land in very different places um, and advocate in different places on this issue. And I see them, honestly, Scott, coming from a place of sympathy. You know, yeah. they land very differently on the life issue, but it's born of, sympathy. And so the conversations do feel very complicated. And that, that clarity is really helpful. Can you What's interesting here is they would yeah. never advocate killing a toddler for the same reasons yeah. they would advocate killing a fetus, which tells right. you that they are assuming, they're not arguing, they're simply assuming the unborn aren't human. They would never say, hey, you know, I know a mother who's poor. She's already got eight kids. Now she has a ninth and she can't afford to feed this toddler. So she's going to eliminate her poverty by eliminating the toddler. Mm -hmm. Your family members and mine who hold opposite views from us would never argue that's a permissible reason to kill a toddler. They only argue that's permissible in abortion because they assume the unborn are not human like that toddler. And that's the very issue of this debate. It very simply comes down to what is the unborn? And that's the question we have to answer. Yeah, I appreciate the clarity there so much. Um, and that actually brings me to another question that I wanted to talk about with you. Something that has been really helpful to me um, from the first edition of The Case for Life and something that I hear you talk about from time to time is this acronym SLED. Um, it's memorable. It's useful. It's clarifying. S-L-E-D. Scott, what is that? Can you tell the listeners? Because I think it would be helpful to everybody listening. Yeah. Well, pro-lifers make their case really in two steps. We argue scientifically that from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. We then argue philosophically that although there are differences between Jen the embryo and Jen the adult woman, those differences are not morally significant such that we could say it was okay to kill you then, but not now. And the SLED acronym illustrates those 
differences that don't matter. Size, you were smaller as an embryo, but body size doesn't equal value. Size is your S in that acronym, by the way. L stands for level of development. Yes, you were less developed as an embryo, but so what? Why does that matter? How developed do you have to be not to be killed? And does more development mean you have a greater right to life than when you had less? I mean, two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. It doesn't follow the two-year-old has less of a right to life simply because mm -hmm. she's less, less, less developed. What about environment where you're located? Where you are has no bearing on who you are or what you are. I'm going to guess you walked from either another part of your house to the studio you're in right now. I'm going to guess you took a journey of at least 70 feet. If I'm wrong, bear with me, but <laughs> follow along. If a journey of 70 feet didn't change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable entity we can intentionally kill to a valuable human being that we cannot? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, simply changing your address isn't going to fix that. And then finally, D stands for degree of dependency, size, level of development, environment, meaning where you're located, and finally, degree of dependency. How does dependency on another human being mean that we can intentionally kill you? Just this morning, I saw a headline involving two young women that are known as the Henschel twins. You may have seen them. They are conjoined twins. They're literally joined at the hip, and now they're in their early 30s. And the article was describing their history, and the press has followed them since infancy. But you look at these two girls, there's one set of legs, and then from the waist up, there's two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. You cannot separate them without killing them. They share a circulatory system. They share vital organs. But if it's true that we can kill the unborn because they depend on another human being, if dependency on another human being means you have no right to life, neither one of those young women have a right to life and both can be killed. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, none of those four differences are good reasons for saying, Jen, you had no right to life then, but you do now. Mm. Again, really, really clarifying and really helpful. And yet, I know in 2023, we have come to such a place of devaluing life that some people on the other side would maybe find some of those um, contentious. Even I think of the dependency. We are increasingly doing away or ending lives sooner than we should because they are dependent. Um, again, the psychological aspect that you referred to earlier muddies the waters, it feels like. But again, the SLED acronym is so helpful and so clarifying. And the um, funny thing about dependency or what some would call viability, it's mm. really a measure of our technology, not the status of the unborn. A mm. child in a neonatal unit in New York City can survive a premature birth at 21 weeks, perhaps, where a, that same child, if he or she were born in Bangladesh, it's closer to 40 weeks survival, almost full term. Does that follow then that children in Bangladesh are not fully human in the womb until 40 weeks? while children in New York are, viability and dependency judge our technology, not the status of the individual itself. Yeah, excellent. So going back to the psychological complexity versus the moral clarity, um, something that has come up frequently, especially for me as a woman, you know, my social media feeds are full of moms, sisters, daughters, girls in their teens, 20s, 30s. Something that I see repeated, Scott, that I would love to hear your take on 
is what about in the situations of rape? A young 11, 12 year old girl is raped and she becomes pregnant or in the situations of incest or, you know, we have all of these caveats that absolutely break your heart. How do we as, you know, fully pro-life Christians walk through the way we think about that and talk about that? It's going to depend on who is asking the question. Is it a crusader or an inquirer? And you treat the two differently. A crusader is bringing up rape to make you look bad. He does not want to hear your explanation. He doesn't care about the pro-life view. He's bringing it up to paint you as an extremist. So when he says to you, how can you call yourself a conservative Christian, pro-life, compassionate Christian, when you would force a woman who's been raped to carry this child to term and always be reminded of what she went through? In what possible world is that a God-honoring, compassionate position to have? I'm going to look right at him and call his bluff. Because his real position is not that abortion should only be legal in cases of rape. His real position is it should be legal for any reason whatsoever. I'm going to make sure everybody knows that. So I will gently but firmly say to him, okay, let's grant for the sake of argument that we allow abortion in cases of rape. Will you now join me in opposing all other abortions that have nothing to do with rape? 100% of the time, and I do mean 100% of the time, he's going to say, no, women have a fundamental right to an abortion. And let's define our terms here. If it's a fundamental right, there can be no infringement on it whatsoever. That means abortion for any reason or no reason, all nine months of pregnancy. Why don't you defend that position rather than hiding behind rape victims? Mm -hmm. However, a lot of people are going to bring up rape and they're not crusaders, they're inquirers. And I think it's very important we as pro-lifers avoid some pitfalls here. The first pitfall is what we call the statistics pitfall. Typically, pro-lifers will say, well, less than 1% of all abortions annually are done because of rape. Well, that's true. Or they'll say, well, most women who get raped don't get pregnant. That's also true, but it's a very bad answer at that exact moment. You were just told about a woman who was sexually assaulted. Your first response should be empathy. And so I'm going to look at that inquiry and I'm going to say, you know what? You're making a very important point here. A woman who has been sexually assaulted this way has suffered a terrible injustice and she deserves our care and our support. You and I agree on that. You're also right, I will say to the inquirer, that this woman may be reminded of what she went through every time she looks at the child, should she give birth. You're probably right about that. So given you and I agree on those two points, How do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Let the question just hang there for a minute and then gently say, is it okay to intentionally kill them so we can feel better? In other words, we're going to bring this right back to the issue, what is the unborn? Nobody would advocate killing a toddler for the sin of his father. Nobody would say, you know, that five-year-old over there was conceived in rape. His father was a moral monster. And to help the mother get over that, we're going to kill the five-year-old. They only say that about the unborn. And again, it's because they assume the unborn aren't human. But I think it's vitally important, Jen, that we remind pro-life Christians, don't fall into the pitfall of being, having no empathy and going right to statistics. Those are two errors you don't want to make. Rather show empathy and then very gently but firmly ask the question, how should a civil society treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Yeah, that's good. 
What do you think, Scott, in terms of voting and politicians? Should we concede? I mean, should we vote for legislation that says abortion will be illegal in my state, except in the cases of rape and incest? I mean, it's it's that sort of compromise position, perhaps. What do you think about the politics and legislation? Not here? necessarily is it compromised. Here's our job as pro-life Christians. We are to limit the evil and promote the good insofar as possible, given the current political realities in front of us. Prior to the reversal of Roe v. Wade, there wasn't a lot we could do at the state level or the federal level that wouldn't get struck down by the federal courts. Well, now that's changed. We now have a chance to advance more uh, protective legislation that will save more lives, and we ought to do it. But if you're, a, let's say you're a state house member, and a bill comes up, and you don't have the votes to protect all children, but you have the votes to protect 80% of them. I'm going to vote to protect the 80% and come back for more. I'm not going to quit till okay. all are protected. So here's where you're compromising. If your ending point is you only want to protect some hum humans, mm -hmm. but not all, then your view is compromised. But if you don't have the political power to protect all humans, so you protect as many as you can, you are not compromising. You're doing the greatest moral good possible given what's in front of you. So the idea that some abolitionists put out there that any, any incremental efforts to limit the evil of abortion are compromised, they're just mistaken on that. You are not compromising if you're doing the greatest moral good you can given the hand you've been dealt. You're only compromising when you have the power to protect all children, but you just won't do it. Mm -hmm. Then you're compromising. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That is really, really helpful. That seems to come up so often. So I appreciate your take on that. Um, let's talk about something that's also in the headlines nonstop right now, and that is the abortion pill. Um, I find when I engage in conversations about this, most people have no idea what it is. They've, they, they aren't even familiar with it, uh, that it even exists. And then of course, how, you know, what happens when you take it? Can you educate our listeners on what the abortion pill is and just some of the ramifications of its legality? The abortion pill can mean a couple of different things. It can mean methotrexate, which is a, a very strong drug that induces labor early and poisons the developing human prior to that. Or it can mean RU486, which is actually a two-step process where the woman first takes a um, pill that induces early labor, and then a second one would act, which actually works negatively and adversely on the developing child. and it both result in the woman basically ending her pregnancy at home. And sometimes that can be very traumatic and painful and bloody, and it's a messy experience. But chemical abortion is not the panacea that pro-abortionists want us to believe it is. It carries risks to the mother. It certainly is not safe for the child. And one thing, though, that has happened is pro-life pregnancy centers who have medical clinic status, many of them are now doing what's called abortion pill reversal treatments, where if the woman has only taken the first step of the RU-46 pill, but not the second, that they can actually reverse that process in some cases and save that child even after she takes the pill if she change, changes her mind. But what's happening politically right now is you have red states that are run by Republicans 
who are limiting abortion, and you have blue states run by Democrats where they are promoting it wholesale. And what's happening is women in red states are being told, oh, you can send away to blue states who will mail you the pill in in your own home state so you don't have to travel. And and now they're trying to make abortion accessible in red states through the mail by mail, mail ordering these pills. Not only is this risky for the mother, it violates the Comstock law that prohibits that kind of interstate trading when one state has banned something and another has not. Okay. So um, let me press in a little bit because I live here in Colorado and um, I have been a volunteer and done um, some things with Alternatives Pregnancy Center before here. And that's just one, that's kind of a gold standard for pregnancy centers here in our state. Um, For those who don't know, Colorado is an extremely abortion-minded state. Our abortion laws have always been um, up until 40 weeks or up until birth has been allowed here. So I received an email from Alternatives earlier this year explaining that um, it is now considered unprofessional conduct to prescribe the abortion reversal pill, and they will be fined up to $20,000 if they do so. And so as a nonprofit, in order to obey the laws of the state, they've had to say, we are no longer going to be able to, our, our, cl- our clinicians, our doctors here will no longer be able to prescribe the abortion reversal pill. Um, Scott, to be honest, that leaves me feeling just defeated. When I look at the landscape in Colorado, I feel so yeah. discouraged by what is allowed in my state. I feel discouraged by how the pregnancy centers are being limited. I am tempted, you know, even as involved in pro-life work as I am, I'm tempted to throw my hands up and walk away. What can I do as as a non-politician in my context in Colorado to keep pressing toward life? Well, I think we need a theological principle, and then we need to have practical ideas for how we can navigate in a blue state where they are going to come after pro-lifers, and make no mistake, they will. Um, The theological principle comes down to this. Quitting is not an option. And let me cite the prophet Jeremiah. God told him to stand in the city square and testify against child sacrifice. And then the Lord told the prophet this distressing piece of information. No one is going to listen to you, not one person. And yet Jeremiah still had the task to testify to truth. So we have it much better than that because there are people we can persuade and do persuade with our pro-life ethic. So we've got to be committed to the truth, even if it is unpopular, even if it is difficult. We're not going to surrender. And that's one of the things that is driving our opponents just mad, that they haven't been able to put the pro-life movement away. They've had 50 years of the courts enforcing pro-abortion ideology, the media enforcing it, the entertainment industry enforcing it, academia enforcing it, and they still have not been able to put us out of business, and they're not going to put us out of business ever. We're not going away. They might as well learn that right now. But in the interim, in blue states in particular, it's going to get tough. They are going to increasingly push Uh, pregnancy centers to going out of business, to making it impossible for them to do their work. A few years ago in California, pregnancy centers were told, you will refer clients to abortion or you will be heavily penalized and put out of business. And thankfully, thanks to the appointment of Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, we were able to get that enjoined and dealt with. 
My guess is we're going to have a lot of fights at the Supreme Court along these lines because the left is going to work overtime to put pregnancy centers and pro-lifers out of business. You can count on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that exhortation that just theologically, um, walking in the steps of Jeremiah and Christ himself, we don't have the option to back down from proclaiming what is true. I don't understand why we were born, and you and I and others who are people of good-minded faith were put in such a time as this, but there will be a future generation that will look back. It may be 200 years from now. I don't know. Because I don't believe there's a quick fix to this fight. I will be dead and gone before this fight is over. And you probably will be too, though you're quite Mm -hmm. a bit younger than me. But the reality is this fight isn't going away overnight. But there will be people in future generations when the fight is won. And I do have hope Mm -hmm. that it will be won who will look back and say, wow, those were the heroes that kept this movement alive when the other side threw the kitchen sink at it. And we're Mm -hmm. still here. We are not going to surrender. I think we have a bit of the Churchill vibe in us. We will never surrender. We will fight them in the state house. We will fight them in the courts. We will fight them wherever we have to fight them to keep this movement alive. And one of the saddest things, Jen, I don't mean to hijack your interview here, but we have people who pose as friends to the pro-life movement who every election cycle come along and they position themselves as concerned compassionate people that are worried we're going to destroy our Christian witness if we get too involved politically protecting the unborn. And there was a piece that was wildly popular in the last election cycle that basically said, hey, pro-lifer, you should really just be committed to love. Don't have blood on your hands because no matter how you vote, you're going to have blood on your hands. If you vote for a pro-life candidate that supports war, you have blood on your hands. As if all these issues are morally equivalent and they're not. And pro-lifers are going to have to be very discerning and very clarifying in election cycles to make sure people understand that voting the biblical ethic on the life issue means you vote to limit the evil and promote the good insofar as you can. It does not mean voting for parties that promote abortion wholesale. Mm. Yeah. So, okay, we have just a couple more minutes, but with that interjection there at the end, Scott, I just got to ask you, should Christians be single issue voters? How do you how do you talk through that? Well, here's the thing. Some issues are disqualifying. Mm-hmm. Uh was Churchill single issue because his solitary purpose was defeating the defeating the Nazis? Uh was Lincoln single issue because he had a purpose of defeating slavery? Both of those were, quote, single issues, but they were also the dominant moral issues of their day. And Mm -hmm. so it was right to give greater weight to those greater moral issues. And I ask this, what issue is there out there that is possibly worse than 10 million innocent human beings being killed annually around the world? I mean, what issue is more important than that? And I I just don't see one. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Scott, your voice is invaluable. Um, Your deep thinking on this and your way to communicate clearly is really helpful. I will be linking in the show notes um, links to the second edition of The Case for Life. And friends, do grab a copy. It is incredibly helpful. It's also memorable and concise and something that will feed you in conversations um, as you go. Scott, where else can people keep up with your work so they can keep hearing from you? Well, they can go to scottklusendorf.com or they can look up on Facebook, the Case for Life podcast. 
We uh, do a weekly podcast, and they can contact me there or at ProLifeTraining.com. That's Life Training Institute's website where I serve as the president. Excellent. And by the way, Thank one you. thing about the Case for Life book, if I may just throw in a quick plug. Please uh, do. Readers will know how to defend their pro-life view in a minute or less after reading the first chapter. They will know how to defend their pro-life view in a minute or less just reading the first chapter. And the rest of it is icing on the cake at that mm-hmm. point. Well, that is excellent because as you said, this conversation is psychologically complex and that does muddy the waters, even though it's morally simple. And so giving us that first chapter is invaluable. So thank you, Scott, for joining us and thank you for your work. You're welcome. And thank you for having me as a Crossway author. (laughs) My pleasure. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply his word to what's happening here and now.